Well, good morning on this Mother's Day Sunday, and it's uh, great to uh, be here with you. I want to ask you a question. What is your vision of the good life? Possibly the good life comes to us in images or in visions of sorts. Maybe, maybe for some, maybe it's uh, skiing in Colorado. Sunshine, blue sky, some soft powder. For others, maybe it's Disney World and the fireworks and the light show at the Magic Kingdom. Maybe for you, it's a dinner at a uh, fine restaurant and that uh, ability to be able to pull out the American Express card to pay for it. Or if it's uh, by the uh, looks of the commercials that have been on TV in the last year, maybe it is working out and staying fit, and that is having your own Peloton. Now that is the good life. Don't you love to sweat? You see, all of these things are good, and yet I suspect that as I mentioned these, that most of us would agree that these models or pictures or images miss the mark. They have a place in our lives, of course, but they are woefully incomplete as a description of the good life. However, as I got to thinking about this, I want to suggest that most of us know better what the good life is not much more clearly than we could describe what it is. In nearly every mental model we receive, whether teachers or coaches or bosses or parents, and especially from all of the advertisers and social influencers, there is a clear direction to attaining the good life. And it's always up and to the right. That is bigger, better, stronger, smarter, safer, healthier. Our lives, our lives are consumed with this mental model of the good life. Now, if we go to God's Word, what is the gold standard there? You see, the Apostle Paul, as we've looked at in the last few weeks, lays out something very different. It is so different that many in his day thought it was stupid or foolish. And many do now as well. And I would suspect that even preaching to the choir, as I might be today, I have a certain fear that if I teach what the Bible actually teaches, that it may not resonate. Not that it is not true, but that it is so far from our deeply ingrained pictures of the good life that we just might not get it. You see, Paul gives us a picture of this life, the good life, in Philippians chapter 2. I'm calling it this morning the J-curve of love, and it is a poetic masterpiece. 
You see, we see the big ideas of the good life in Philippians 2. Here's the outline. The first four verses of Philippians 2 are the outcome of the good life. The outcome, that is the result, the consequence of uh, living a certain lifestyle. And that is recorded in the upfront in the passage, 1 through 4. Then there is a link in chapter 2 and verse 5 from the outcome to the path. And that link involves our lives. And then the path to the good life as witnessed in Jesus is in verses 6 through 8. Let me see if I can help us with this outline. First, the outcome that comes first in chapter 2 and 1 through 4. Paul tells us the outcome of taking the path of Christ. And these results, beginning with verse 1, Therefore, if anyone has any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then here it is, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Okay? It is being one of mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing nothing out of vain or selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but also, but each of you to the interests of others. Let me see if I can say it in a different way. Here's the outcome of where Paul wants to take us, what the good life is going to look like by, that comes from being united with Christ. It sparks or produces encouragement in others, comfort, sharing, tenderness, compassion for others. You see, when these then are expressed, there, is, there are social and community consequences. We're in this together. There's togetherness. There's oneness. There's a community of love. There is a cluster of goodness. What I'm trying to say is that the outcome that Paul is looking for is not just about what happens to you as an individual or what might happen to you in your marriage or you in your family, but it is communal. Isn't this the type of community that you want to live in? And then verse 5 of this text serves as a hinge. It ensures that we see that what happens in the path of Christ applies to us directly. The text says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Some of the older NIV translations said same attitude, same mindset as Christ Jesus. An attitude that's the same as Jesus, the same mental map as Jesus. That's all we're asking for. And then there is the path to get there. And that's outlined, and I want to spend a little more time here in verses 6 through 8. 
Now this section, in some ways, is so familiar and yet so out of sync with the air we breathe day to day that we might not get or might resist that while it is describing Jesus, it is for us. That's what verse 5 just told us, that our mental map is to be the same as his. So what is this process of going from the mindset of Christ to the mental map of Christ to producing the good life? It is the J-curve lifestyle that we've been talking about for the past few weeks. And it's set forth in those, these three verses, and I want to suggest this way. Step one, your advantages. Here's the way the text says it. Who, meaning Christ, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I don't know how there could be a statement in the Bible that is more contrary to the way we tend to think, the way we are taught to think, to the competitiveness of the world in which we live, but we're not to use our advantages to our own advantage. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, some translations put it. You see, Jesus was fully God, and what are all the privileges of being God? Well, he was aware of all things. He was aware of all time. He had all authority. He had all power. And for Jesus, heaven at the right hand of God was his privilege, was his advantage. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit filled with harmony. It was supportive. It was mutually caring. And God within himself, in his relational mode, was complete. He was filled with joy. So why leave heaven? Why bother with us human beings on this troubled planet? For love. Because God in Christ had a vision of the good life for all of God's creation, a vision of love for his abundant life to be experienced by the church, by the whole world. You see, he sees, he saw a better outcome. And so number two, if the first thing is to identify your advantages in order to be like Jesus, to disown your advantages then is what I am, I am requesting, what the text is requesting. And by doing that, you have to identify them first. So in your own self-assessment, let me give you a hint as a starting point. You have some advantages too. In most cases, you have the advantages or the privileges of your freedom, of your time, of your talents, of your leisure, of your treasures. So ask yourself this question. Am I going to use these advantages for an up and to the right lifestyle or for myself or for a greater good? 
as we see that Jesus did. Step two, you have some choices to make. Verse 6 says this, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, he was willing to give up his equality. There was a willingness to descend on the J-curve. And I don't mean that this was an easy choice, and I doubt that it was an easy choice even for the Son of Man. You see, for Jesus, there was a, there was a tumultuous battle between flesh and spirit over whether to exercise his advantages or whether to forego them. The life God wants for you is the good life, is the abundant life, and yet it may not look much like the life that you think God gives you or the, even the one you want. You see, taking this step, making these choices in the J-curve requires a prayer of faith. The J-curve is voluntary. And you and I, just like Jesus, choose it. And then in step three, he outlines, this is about love. Your love. Christ's love first, but now your love. Verses seven and eight point this out. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Two phrases from this text jump out. The first is this. He took the form of a servant, or more accurately, a slave. That is a serious descent a serious step of humility. And the second is even, even more magnificent. He humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. And Jesus takes these massive steps on this steep downward descent. When he was nailed to the cross, he felt the weight of our sins, and he freely and he voluntarily felt the burden. He felt the pain, he felt the nails, he felt the agony of the weight of the world until his heart stopped. And it is a powerful story and it is a stunning event. And in a world that is confused about the nature of love, consistently talking about it and confusing it with our feelings, does anything come close to demonstrating what love is like as convincingly as Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? So Jesus gives us the perfect definition to love here. And as uh, Matthew Bardwell uh, read First John chapter 3 last week, it was so perfect as it described sacrificial love coming from Christ and involving us. I want to read it again from the message because I believe it uh, brings together this big idea this morning. Here's the good life according to the gospel. 1 John chapter 3, 16 and 17. 
This is how we came to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. You see, sacrificial love is made visible in Jesus through the J-curve the passage shows us the good life Jesus demonstrates. He's our mental map. And if you want the outcomes and if you take the path, then think about this diagram from Philippians chapter 2. The descent of love from heaven to Bethlehem to Calvary. It's the mental map of both the outcome and the path, and I believe it becomes our day-to-day -day motivator. Okay, so let's uh, bring all this together then, and today is Mother's Day. And mothers all over the world somehow understand the J-curve. They get it. In fact... God's greatest partner in his redemptive story must be a mother's love. Isn't the highest and purest and most unconditional form of sacrifice, aside from Jesus' own death, witnessed in a mother's love? for her children. Now, uh, Ed Stetzer, a writer for Christianity Today, writes about his own coming to terms with this idea of sacrificial love, the good life, and speaks for every mother and every follower of Jesus that gets the good life and I'm, am, that I'm trying to describe today. And he says it this way. Nothing you could say or offer could make me do what I was about to do. No argument could persuade me. No threat could pressure me. Yet I was about to do it voluntarily. Why on earth would I be compelled to do this? What was going on inside me? Then a simple and clear question formed in my head. Could this be love? Could it be that love was the force, the energy, the compelling drive that urged me to do something that repulsed me? 
and would no doubt repulse you. But now as I was about to do this gross and disgusting deed, I thought, so this is love. I am compelled to do this because I love my daughter. Of course, all these thoughts flashed through my mind in a millisecond as I cupped my hands and caught my daughter's vomit so she would not get it all over herself. Instead of following my natural instinct to jump out of the way, love for my little girl compelled me to stay right there by her side, letting her know she was not alone and everything was okay. In that moment, I knew something inside me had changed. I think all of us can relate. All of us, the mothers, can relate to comforting a child in this way. Most of the fathers can too, and most all of us, maybe even taking care of an aging parent, understand coming alongside in this way. This type of sacrificial love, even when sometimes it's repulsive or gross, is what God is calling us to, the good life. So I want to ask you, as we close this morning, what's your vision of the good life, of the desired outcome and the path to get there. You see, how could God love us so much that he would give, his, give us his son, Jesus voluntarily chooses to give up his advantages. Likewise, we identify our advantages and willingly give them up so that we might bring about the outcome of the good community, of the good world, of the good life that God desires. How can you, mothers, love so much that you will sacrifice everything for your children? How do we learn to love like this for the sake of the church? Indeed, for everyone that we encounter in God's creation. And so, one more time this morning, and then I'll be taking a few-week break, but the elders will be preaching over the next four weeks or so, the J-curve. That's the path. That's the path that Jesus identifies for all for us, and that Paul puts into words. It is clearly marked out as steps of descent, the steps of sacrificial love taken by Jesus, understood by every mother, and chosen again and again and again by those who truly follow Jesus.
God bless you as you make those important choices.